Good morning and welcome to episode 168 of Page One, the Writer's Podcast. I'm Tarek. I'm Marco. How do you know people are listening to this in the morning? I can just tell. I can just tell. We're a morning I, I can only imagine podcast. the nicest way for most people to wake up in the morning is the sound of our voices in their ears. Nice, I see. So yeah, on an alarm or something, this is how you <laughs> yeah. wake them up. Good morning. Uh, yes, uh, thanks for joining us again for another episode of the podcast where we like to speak to writers of all kinds about their writing careers, find out how they got into the industry and try and get as many hints and tips from them as possible. Um, and we do have, as I always say, a great back catalogue of guests there, so please do check that out if you haven't already. But if this is your first episode, then you're joining us for a good one. Yes, what a, what a first episode to start with, if this is your first, because we are chatting with the wonderful Graham McRae Burnett, who is a Scottish writer who's written a number of excellent books, but perhaps his bloody project is the one you're most familiar with. Uh, it came out in 2015 and was, of course, shortlisted for the Booker Prize. Um, it's about a, a small crofting murder and the kind of, you know... Uh, in the 19th century. Yeah. century, I think it is, yeah. And then kind of that kind of fake documents and that kind of metafiction vibe that it's got uh, which is which is very cool and case study is his most recent book which was long listed for the booker prize yeah so and it's a really interesting chat he he has we talked to him about that sort of metafiction in the way that he doesn't write what you might term a straight a straight mm-hmm. novel or whatever although as he tells us um in his view his books are, are more like the original novels than... Yes, like Dracula, yeah, etc. That kind of... Yeah. There were always books within books. Within yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, it's really interesting hearing about that. And also, um, just talking about his process, which is, um, you know, when you're writing something like that, you'd think you would need to carefully plan it all out. But it turns out that that is absolutely not the case. Not the case. <laughs> um, but we will get straight into it after a quick advert for our writer's notebook and then we'll be back at the end of the podcast with a bit more chat and to let you know about next week's guest. But for now, on with the podcast. The blank page. To some, it's terrifying, an obstacle to overcome. But we prefer to think of it as an opportunity, a blank canvas to be filled with all of the adventures and characters in our head. So how to overcome that fear? Well, we all know the best advice for a writer is write. Seriously, get words on the page and more will follow. But what about later, when you start trying to pull those threads of what you've written together? What about the character you wrote about way back at the start? Who was she again? What was she carrying? And where did she leave the MacGuffin that she now really needs in the third act? Think about all those top thrillers you like to read. Or that amazing drama you just watched. What did they all have in common? structure and planning. As aspiring writers ourselves, we've tried many different methods to try and organise all the thoughts about the stories we want to tell. We've been there searching for a piece of scrap paper to note something down or making a quick note on our phone in between meetings. Or sometimes we'll make a note in whatever notebook we're carrying or a document on our laptop so we don't forget that great idea. Let's be honest, it can all be a bit messy and it's easy to lose track of everything. And that's when we realise it's not just a story that needs structure and planning, but the way we gather all of our thoughts about it as well. And so we made Page One. Page One is more than just another notebook. It's a place to put down all your ideas for your latest project, divided into easy-to-use sections that will help you plan your story, so that when that blank page comes calling, you're ready to answer. 
and then afterwards, once it's written, we realised you need to plan how to let people read it, so we included a section relating to submissions. Each one is designed for one project. Whether you want to write a book, screenplay, a comic or any other kind of story, we truly believe that when you use it, it will help you get to the main event, writing your story. So we hope this helps. We can't wait to read what you come up with. And remember, every story starts with page one. Did you always want to be a writer? Uh, well, first of all, hi, thanks for having me, Marco and Tarek. Um, did I always want to be a writer? Well, I, I wanted to be a writer since I was a teenager. Um, I wasn't a huge reader as a child. I mean, my mum would take me to the library every week, you know, in Kilmarnock, where I was brought up. Um, but as a teenager, I don't think I really had a strong... I wasn't a big reader. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was only when I, I came across a book you might have heard of called Catcher in the Rye. And I took it home from school and, you know, suddenly I felt that here was a book that communicated something to me and it it communicated in a voice that I related to, this alienated, slightly unpleasant uh, teenager, which was exactly what I was at the time. So suddenly I felt like, um, oh, literature is not something elsewhere about other people. Mm -hmm. It can be about me too. And I I think... um, you know, lots of writers, you know, whatever their background, find a book that sort of mirrors their experience in some way and draws them into the world of writing. So, I mean, even then I started writing. <laughs> I, I don't even mention this very often, but I did write some poetry. Um, uh, and, you know, I write. I was, just, I was just writing stuff. I wrote songs and uh, wrote short stories and... Um, yeah, for some reason, yeah, for sure. I, I At that moment, I, all I wanted in life was to publish a novel. I wouldn't even say I wanted to be a writer. I don't know if I knew what that was. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe I still don't. Um, but yeah, no, so yeah, really started when I was a teenager. And, and I, th- I think you, you obviously studied English at uni and then um, went on to teach English abroad and, and then came back and worked yeah. as a researcher. Um, were you writing throughout that time? When did when did you, I suppose, start seriously trying to write that novel that you that you wanted to get published? Um, well, I did all through the, all these different experiences. I did, um, you know, more or less. You know, I was always writing some, some short stories or something. So I'd probably written, I don't know, thirty short stories. You know, by the time I got to being published. Um, I didn't even. I wasn't even sending them out most of the time. I wrote. I wrote a novel in the nineteen nineties, a quite a pretty generic crime novel, um, which you know I had a guy. A guy was interested in it. You know, I think it was okay. You know, but it didn't get published, and and now I'm very happy about that. I wasn't <laughs> so happy at the time. Um, so yeah, I, I, I definitely was um, always writing, and you know, I totally regard that process as the process of learning the craft. Um, you know, and I dabbled in different styles and I was probably very easily influenced by whatever I might be re- reading at the time. Mm-hmm. I mean, when I was a when I was a literature student in Glasgow University in the 80s, you know, I was like, you know, I was basically besotted with Samuel Beckett. So I was writing this kind of Beckettian, you know, pretentious, absolute tosh. And then, and then after <laughs> a while, I was, you know, I was reading. This was a time when Janice Galloway and James Kelman were pu- publishing some of their earlier work. And of course, you know, tremendously influential because they were writing about the places around 
around me in voices that you hear in the streets of Glasgow. Mm-hmm. So I was kind of, I wrote some sort of Kelman-esque short stories, you know, and later on, uh, you know, I, maybe when I finished university and I was reading Bukowski and, you know, it's, reading Bukowski is very liberating if you've been, you know, doing, you know, 18th century Augustan verse at university. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I, I, I tried out loads and loads of styles to say I, I had written a novel um, in the 90s but I, w- I was, uh, you mentioned I was working in TV as a researcher and I, I, I lost my job, which was fine because I was kind of at the end with it anyway. And I was 40 um, and I thought, okay, if not now, when? Um, I had a wee bit of money from, from the job that I'd been doing. I felt like I could fund myself for about a year um, as a writer. And I, I ended up writing what became The Disappearance of Adele Boudot actually took me about three years to write it um and i'm sure we'll get on to the publishing journey but it was about another three years before it appeared in print but so i was 46 when i published my first novel which mm-hmm. will be heartening to some people yeah. and heartening to others had you had you ever considered you know you obviously went back to uni a few times and you studied different stuff and you kind of retrained etc for different jobs as, as as you went, but did you ever think about going back to do like a creative writing course or to do anything like that? Or, um, and do you think they were of any value to people? Well, I mean, uh, just just on my own personal experience, I mean, I think I'm 55, and so I mean, creative writing and as a taught subject at university is quite a new thing in Britain, aside from a couple of places, and it's certainly relatively recently that it's. You know, basically, most universities will offer some kind of creative writing courses. So it wasn't really on my radar. Um, um, whether if I'd been a bit, you know, a bit younger, um, it might have occurred to me. I don't know. I mean, I'm a bit of a lone wolf, and I don't seek out advice. Um, and I've never been part of a writer's group. I've never gone to a workshop. I've never given a workshop. So... Um, from from my, for myself, I can understand that I might have got to the point where that would have felt like a useful thing to do, but it just didn't really tally with my chronology. Mm-hmm. Are they useful? I think you have to ask the people who do the courses. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I, obviously, I know lots of writers, some of whom have gone through creative writing courses and they've had a really positive experience. Others have gone through creative writing courses, not had such a positive experience. But I think it depends a lot on the chemistry between the tutors and the and the and the students and maybe the chemistry within the student group, and then of course there are other people who have just gone the traditional route of um, kind of teaching yourself or finding your own way. Um, so I mean, I'm I'm probably more on the skeptic side of the whole creative writing thing. I mean, I, I met I met a woman. Um, I just finished doing an event and it was in the signing queue and a woman came up to me and said, oh, my son really wants to be a writer. So he's going off to university to study creative writing. And to me, that's slightly depressing that it's a sort of you know, the way to become a writer mm-hmm. is to go and do a degree in creative writing. I think there's a lot more to being a writer than than that. Um, but that's not to say they, they, these courses don't have a function. And I don't know. I mean, have, do you guys have experience of doing these things no but i mean it, yeah. it, like you say it's it's everyone has their own experience and we've had a lot of guests on who who have been through some of these courses and and 
you know, I think largely probably found them useful in some way, but it, they've definitely taken different things out of them. Yeah. I think it's almost the experience of, you know, it's just almost having the the sort of time or sort of almost being forced into the discipline of actually writing that, that is the most valuable thing about these things. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, clearly just to have some deadlines and to motivate you and maybe to have a supportive cohort, somebody, mm-hmm. you know, every, everybody has to show their work at a certain point to a critical yeah. reader. And whether that's within the framework of a creative writing course or you're lucky enough to have some trusted friends who will give you feedback um but you have to do it in some way you can't just write your glorious masterpiece no. um, in the first draft and then send it to an agent and they go here's the check for a million pounds um <laughs> uh, so you you know everyone has to find their way to go through that sort of becoming critical of their own work um I, I, I suppose for you in a way you know writing 30 short stories or whatever it was that you'd done that that in a way is your own process and going your own sort of training into the world of writing. No, I mean, I, yeah, no, as I said, I totally regard that as learning the craft. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I remember certain stories that I wrote, um, which I was like, all oh, right, okay. I mean, maybe looking back, you know, uh, I was doing something I hadn't done before, maybe like, you know, entering the, the consciousness of a character in a different way, allowing mm-hmm. the reader into those thoughts using different modes of narration. Um, I wasn't necessarily conscious of what I was doing, but I can look back and see things that I learned. Yeah, and when, you know, when I came to write the disappearance of Adele Badeau, you know, of course that's my first published novel, but it's not. It's not, actually wasn't my first novel, and you know, it was. I'm, I'm looking back there. I'm actually surprised at the sort of level of control in that book, and I'm quite. I'm, I remain proud of that book. Um, I'm very fond of it for various reasons. Um, but yeah, I think it was the culmination of all these years of you know experimenting with different styles and so on. Yeah. Well, well, let's chat about about that that book then, because obviously, as you say, that was the first book which was out there was that you put out there. That was like you um, after you'd, you'd written your first book that didn't go anywhere. But this is your your first actual kind of proper book. If you want to put, <laughs> yeah, if you want to I'm happy to call it proper. <laughs> <laughs> so, so what what was the process there? Did you did you write it? Did you go for, for an agent first? Did you go straight to the publisher? What was your route? Um, well, I, I wrote that book, um, never believing that it would be published. I mean, I thought I was writing something to slay my own demons. Um, okay. I needed to write a novel. Um, I didn't know what to write. I'd started various other novels, maybe written them to like 20, 30,000 words, and then find myself in a, you know, against up against the wall. Um, so the way this, this particular one came about, you know, just in case readers don't know anything about it, it's a sort of detective story set in a small town in France called Saint Louis, which, which is a real place. And, um, I, I I happened to visit this town, which is a very unremarkable place, uh, as is stated in the book. And I went for lunch in this particular restaurant, traditional French uh, brasserie, and I was totally captivated by the ambiance of this place, particularly because I'm very influenced by the Belgian writer Georges Simenon, and he describes these kind of fr- provincial French settings, you know, really immaculately with great economy of language. So I felt like I was in a Simenon novel. And um, at the time, this was about the year 2001, I guess. I wrote two or three pages just as a description of this restaurant and the characters that I saw in it. And um, it was only 10 years later 
that I, I came back to those pages. It always it always stuck mm-hmm. in my mind. And um, I, the, I kind of played a trick on myself, which was to tell myself that I wasn't writing a novel. I was just writing a story that was getting really long. And because... <laughs> Um, I, you know, I still think writing a novel is, you know, it's a uh, a very intimidating prospect. You know, it's it's a it's a it's a mountain. You have to keep going. It takes ages. At least it takes me ages. And um, so I kind of I just allowed it to grow fairly organically. And I, I didn't have a plan. I had the, the characters and the initial situation, which is you know this outsider character called Mandra Bowman who goes regularly to the restaurant and then the waitress Adele Bodeau disappears and he's suspected of uh, being involved in her disappearance. Uh, so I, I kind of had that initial situation, but I didn't know anything that was going to happen. And so I just I just kept writing. I certainly, you know, I had no thought of um, approaching agents or publishers until it was finished. Um, do you want me to go on and talk about that now? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, please. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I, as I say, it took me quite a long time. I had a draft which was quite short, about 55 or 60,000 words. Um, and, yeah, I, as a situation that you're in, Marco, and um, I'm sure many of the listeners are in, I started sending it out. I sent it out in a, a little batches of, like, five at first to different agents, and I kind of, like, um, took a different tack tack with some of my approaches. I started with the agents in Scotland who I felt might be more conducive to a, a Scottish-based writer. Mm-hmm. Um, no, and, you know, gradually I spread my net a little bit further, you know, as we were saying before we came on air. You know, it's very frustrating. You don't get any response or you get a response, yeah. you know, six months later. Um, and if you, if you even get an email back, you're like, Oh my God, an agent <laughs> secretary just sent me an email. <laughs> I can't believe it. This is amazing. Um, because we're, you know, you're in the situation of such desperation because, yeah. you know, the, the agent, agents are the gatekeepers to the, the publishers or at least yeah. the bigger publishers. Eventually, um, an agent asked to see the manuscript. I'll, I'll pick up the story, um, sent off the full manuscript, and then the agent. So this was a young agent within a larger agency. So it was a, still a small agency, but um, he was basically a guy building his list, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, I went down to London, had a meeting, um, which was absolutely 100%, one hour, talking about the manuscript. No chit-chat, just boom, boom, boom. Here's what I think. In the end, the, the upshot was, can you make it 20,000 words longer? Um I had actually already written some material for what I intended to be the follow-up to the book. Um, so I, I, I incorporated some of that material. I developed a couple of the characters. I balanced the novel much, much better between the two central characters, Manfred Bauman and George Gorski, the cop. Sent it back. They were happy. Um, and then, okay, right. And so, oh, this is all good. So I now have an agent. I mean, at that point, we, we signed a contract. And you know, I have to. I have only praise for this agent um, and agency because they put a lot of time into the editorial side, reading my drafts and giving really good feedback. And I think you'd be very foolish if you didn't listen to that feedback yeah. when you're at that set stage. Uh, so then they sent it out to the publishers, and nobody wanted it. Um, 
And uh, of course, you know, you think once you've got an agent, you've reached the holy grail. You know, so that in my case didn't happen. Um, I think the book the book is a kind of curiosity in a way, and there is a det- is a crime novel, but it's not it's, it's very long on ambiance and character. It's very short on narrative. So it's not a traditional crime novel. It's much more in a European tradition and much more character-based. So it wasn't really crimey enough for straight crime publishers, but it didn't seem like a literary novel either. So it didn't really fit into the boxes. And also people were like, why is a Scottish guy writing a novel set in France? If we want a French novel, we'll get one written by a French guy. So it, for whatever reason, it didn't get published. I then took it on myself and sent. There was a, a small number of uh, indie publishers at that point were accepting uh, submissions, uh, unsolicited manuscripts. It so happened that Saraband Books were starting a crime imprint called Contraband, in which they were intending to publish, you know, more unusual sort of crime writing. So at this point, the stars were aligned, mm-hmm. you know. Here's a small Glasgow, at that time, Glasgow-based publisher starting a crime imprint, wanting kind of weird, quirky crime. And so I sent it to them, and they accepted it pretty quickly, within a few weeks, I would say, maybe three months. And then all joy, joy unbridled. (laughs) I mean, yeah, at that point, you know, I just, I remember saying to my girlfriend, um, I will die a happy man because my novel has been published. That is all I ever wanted to do, going back to the beginning of the yeah. conversation. I had no thoughts about um, being selling lots of books. I just wanted my book to be published. And, you know, thanks to Sarah Hunt and Saraband Books, you know, um, I still it still moves me to remember those amazing times, you know. So it was quite a long road, you know. The it- editing process with them was pretty light, um, but, you know, still another year probably before it came out or nine months anyway. And in, in that sort of period where you got the agent, the agent sends it out and before Saraband pick it up and there isn't a lot of interest. I mean, at that point, what, you know, what were you thinking at that point? Were you thinking, oh, I'm going to have to start again? I'm going to back um, to square one? Or were you still hopeful that you would find a home for it somewhere? I think I think at that point I was not hopeful that I would find a home for it, and I, I had crossed my mind to self-publish. Although mm-hmm. um, that was not a, never been my ideal route, and not something that I would necessarily, um, you know, I think it's something to be entered into with due consideration, yeah. put it that way, especially for a novel. Um, but no, I had an idea for another book, which was his bloody project. So I mean, I also around almost exactly at this time, um, I um, I won the New Writers Award from the Scottish Book Trust. So I actually, within a week, the same week, I won the New Writers Award and got an agent. So I was like, I was kind of sitting pretty at that point. Um, so because I was I was doing the New Writers scheme. And going through that, which was fantastic for me, I met you know a whole bunch of writers in the similar situation that yeah. I was in, going through the same stuff, and I was writing his bloody project. So that was kind of the next thing. Um, and I remember, I certainly remember feeling that if his bloody project didn't find a publisher, then that would be it. I'd give up. But whether I would have, I don't know. But um, yeah. yeah, so there, you know, there, there was definite times of. There was sort of despair, but 
I only ever, I think I had a very Scottish attitude, which was I only ever sent anything out in order to know that it would be rejected. You know, I had to go through it, you know, yeah. so that I wouldn't be left wondering, I should yeah. have done this. Yeah. You know, I, yeah, I, totally. I honestly, I just didn't think that anybody would ever publish my work. I mean, and um, I mean, obviously that's a bit, I don't know, maybe it was a sort of feelings of, uh, I'm not worthy or insecurity um, at the time. I, I'm not sure, but or maybe it's because I didn't, um, I hadn't been in contact with people who were published and um, well, were I, kind of role models. I, I, I think until you until you either are in touch with people like that and and well, speak yeah. to them, or yeah. until you have been picked up, it can seem like an impossible thing to do. You know, the steps are. You know, yeah. sort of, look, they look simple. You send in the chapters, they get picked up, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But it it's, yeah. it can seem like an impossible goal yeah. when there's so many people try to do it. So yeah, that's right. And you know, once once you're inside it, as I am now, I'm like, yeah, of course, agents want to see your yeah. work. You know, um, but I think it's also like, you know, I mean, I'm not gonna. I come from a quite middle class kind of background, and but I come from Kilmarnock, and I don't. But I wasn't brought up hanging around with other writers, you know, or mm. seeing writers. It wasn't like a sort of career path that I thought was open to me, you know, and or even anything in the creative industries, you know, was, um, you know, if you, you know, so I think, I, I, I suppose I thought there was the sort of thing that was for other people, you know, yeah. not, really for, not really for the likes of me. And I say that not trying to play any sort of a poor me sort of card. You say I come from a, I don't come from a deprived background, but I don't come from a background of sort of media type people. I didn't know people in that kind of lines of work. Um, but yeah, um, you know, the thing is, all all you can do is exhaust all avenues, you know, yeah. and just, yeah. just if there's one publisher that's left that might um, look at your work, send it to them or one agent, you know, it only, it only takes one person, you know. Well, that, yeah, that's exactly it. I mean, um, one of our other guests said, once you've just got to keep asking until someone says yes, essentially. Yeah, which I, is, I, mean, I, knew, yeah. I knew from when I worked in TV, basically I wrote two proposals for TV programs and pitched them to broadcasters. And uh, you could pitch a program idea and they'd be like, nah, not for us. And then the commissioner would change and then suddenly they'd want something on yeah. You know, 18th century, you know, haikus, and you just sent a proposal about 18th century haikus, um, but now somebody else was making it. But it, so the stars were not aligned. And as I say, although I'd like to think that Sarab Saraband liked the book, they weren't concerned that it wasn't about what box it fitted in. Mm -hmm. I'd like to think they would have picked it up anyway. Um, but, but as I say, the stars were aligned in that they were just setting up this imprint. So yeah. um, it worked. The timing was good. And I mean, I mean, looking at your books as a whole, they're all, um, you know, they all play with the idea of kind of reality and metafiction, and uh -huh. um, you know, it's kind of uh, whether it's a rediscovered French novel or it's a collection of manuscripts that you've pulled, um, you know, it's it's an interesting concept that you that you do with your books, and and I kind of wondered what was it that drew you to this style of writing? You know, what was why did you not want to just write a conventional novel? What was it that about this <laughs> style that you really liked? Well, I, I would actually argue that the, this is, these are conventional novels because, you know, if you look at novels from the beginnings of time, you know, the beginnings of the form of the novel, mm -hmm. um, you know, 
I admit it's unusual to say that you're only the translator of your first novel, as I do, <laughs> and it was written by somebody else. Um, but Don Quixote, uh, the first novel, is uh, allegedly a found document translated from Arabic. Um, Daniel, De uh, Daniel Defoe's uh, Robinson Crusoe, also a found document novel written by Robinson Crusoe, who was purported at that time to be a real person. Uh, so, and, you know, if you look at the construction of Dracula or yeah. Frankenstein, mm -hmm. all these big 19th century novels, they're almost always constructed through various documents, pieces of diary, letters, journals, and so on. So I would say that I'm drawn to it. Yeah, absolutely. But this is the conventional novel. Uh, but I think maybe in the sort of latter part of the 20th century, and now we've maybe forgotten about some of these techniques that are available to as novelists. I mean, I, I never, the whole metafiction stuff, which is in all my books, um, it was never a grand plan. I mean, it was just like, you know, so with Adele Boudot, I felt like I was writing a translation anyway, because mm -hmm. the characters were French, they would mm -hmm. have been speaking in French. And my the book draws very heavily on that tradition of mid 20th century French crime fiction, um, or French fiction in general. And I, I wanted to give it the feeling of being a translation. Mm -hmm. um, so it, to me, it just seemed completely natural to invent an actual French French author who'd actually written the book. Um, so there was that with that book. And then with His Bloody Project, the concept of that book was this is a novel which was going to be told in, in a series of documents. So that was very much the yeah. heart of the idea of the book, which came actually from a, a, a book of a case study of French criminal case, the case of Pierre Riviere. And there is a volume which contains witness statements, newspaper reports, and his own memoir. So I kind of modeled his bloody project on that okay. um, French nonfiction book. And uh, so uh, it's, I, I think it's kind of become my signature um, in a way. And I get asked about it a lot. And I enjoy these, I enjoy all these, um, the, the playfulness, or I feel I'm just like interrogating the text. You know, if somebody, mm -hmm. if an author presents uh, first person, text i'm like yeah where did you get it where did you find this journal it's just a question that i would ask yeah. myself as a reader so i'm just coming up with the answers you know where oh, i found this document in the archive in the highlands or mr gray sent me this series of notebooks um from clacton on sea mm -hmm. belonging to his uh his cousin uh i suppose i just i enjoy that stuff and i suppose they also i, I kind of feel books like this ask more of the reader than, yeah. than other books would and you, you know because you almost as a reader you get engaged with it you kind of it becomes more it breaks the fourth wall a little bit and you and you kind of you have to decide yourself what you take from the book absolutely i can agree more Tarek. and uh, i mean that is part of the appeal that i really feel that in presenting the, the narrative in these kind of ways with maybe different versions of the same incident you're asking the reader to make up his or her mind about what's going on you're yeah. you're not you you can't be a passive reader and yeah. as a writer i never ever want to tell the reader what to think you know i want um i want the the potential meanings or interpretations to be very open for the reader and i don't want to close them down by some sort of resolution at the end mm -hmm. and i think by presenting documents you you already throw into doubt the veracity of what you might be reading. You know, is this person being truthful? Should I believe what they're saying? Mm -hmm. 
what what have they left out of their narrative? Why have they left that out? You know, so I, as you say, yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, I think it invites the reader in, and I think um, I mean with his bloody project, obviously it got a big leg up by a certain book prize, but even with that leg up uh, from the Booker Prize, wouldn't account for the success of the book. And I think part, I mean, which is an absolute surprise and mystery for me because I think it's not a, an easily, it doesn't have bestseller written all over it. Um, but I, I think it was a big success in book clubs precisely with for the reason you mentioned, uh, Tanik, because people were able to have a conversation about the book. You know, the book is open for discussion and you can ha have opposing views and you're going to actually talk about the book and have an argument about it. And I think that that word of mouth kind of fueled the success of that book. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and when you're, when you're writing these stories, when you're, when you're pulling these types of stories together, are you, are, how detailed do you, do you plan them out beforehand? Do you, do you have an idea or do you just start writing and, and see? What I, I don't plan you? anything. I don't right. plan okay. anything. I not only, I just, I don't have a planning brain, um, but even if I could, I don't want to, um, because, I mean, uh, well, with, with his bloody project, I knew that I was going to have a central character, Scottish crofter, and he's going to commit a murder. That was my starting point. Mm -hmm. I didn't know who he was going to murder. And of course, but I knew that I was working towards that, that, that point, mm -hmm. um, as I say, with the situation in Adele Boudou, I started from a, a situation of a couple of characters, a setting, and the disappearance of the waitress, and, and everything follows from that. Um, you know, so sometimes I have an idea of some maybe some scenes that will come up, but um, for me, and it's like for me, it's becoming more and more important to me that if I feel that I'm writing just to reach a certain goal or a certain narrative goal uh, in the story, then I'm going to go, kind of go there in a direct line. Yeah. And um, then if any time when, when I go to the Mitchell Library nearby here and I sit down to do my writing, any time I feel something magic's happened, it's, it's, because, it's not because I'm trying to get to a point, it's because I've gone off somewhere. I had absolutely no idea. Uh, where where that that would have occurred and it only occurred because I sat down to write. I mean, even yesterday, so I'm back in San Luis. I'm writing the final book with George Gorsky. Gorsky's going for lunch in the restaurant de la Cloche as usual, but it's Thursday, so he has to walk through the market. Now he doesn't even have to walk through the market. I could just have him being and going straight into yeah. the restaurant. I had a I had a kind of inkling that I wanted to write a scene about the market, partly because. It's a scene that occurs in lots of French literature, like in Madame Bovary and in Emile Zola. Uh, this is an exclusive. Don't tell anyone that, that my motivation is so brilliantly pretentious here. Um, um, so I'm, I'm just writing. I'm writing Gorsky going through the market. And it's like, of course, he's going to meet people he knows because he walks through the market every day. And then I, within you know a couple of hours, I'd written 1,200 words, which is quite a lot for me. And this 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 market has taken on a whole life and there are these characters I invented the character of the guy who goes around getting the fees from each of the stall holders and this guy's completely corrupt um, and you know but when Gorsky became chief of police the corrupt bursar offered him a brown envelope which Gorsky refused 
And Gorsky, Gorsky's refusal to take this envelope, he thought this could make him a kind of hero of the stallholders, but it had the opposite effect because they're all complicit in this corruption. And so he set himself outside it. And I'm like, this is, I mean, I enjoyed writing this. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And if I, I, none of that existed before I went to the library yesterday. And it, it existed because I went there with no plan. Mm-hmm. I thought, right, I'm going to try and write a thousand words as I usually do. Uh, I, let's 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 write that bit about the market. You know, this has no narrative importance whatsoever in the book, but it will be in the book. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, and it's really important for me, uh, and especially in those books. To these are the book. The books are about that stuff. If there's a crime in the books, um, it's incidental. You know, it's just an excuse for me to explore Gorsky walking through the market. Yeah, and uh, so. I mean- that's why I don't plan. I mean, it sounds to me, though, that although you say that you don't plan, you must do a lot of research so mm. that when you come to sit down, you you know, for instance, what this market is like or what, you know, how it would be set out or what the, the crofts were like back in yeah. that time, etc. So, you might, so I think you do a lot of research before you yeah. sit down to start writing. Well, no, no that's, that's also true. I would, say, I would draw a distinction between research and planning. I mean, uh, I, I actually love research, you know, and then, you know, his bloody project and case study were especially his bloody project. It was a very research heavy book, lots of mm-hmm. different aspects. And I enjoyed doing the research. And yes, you're absolutely right. I had to, in order to start writing about the, the village and the highlands, I had to go and learn about that and read the available texts and visit some highland museums where you can kind of walk around and look at the kind of buildings and the tools and all that. Um, so, yeah, I'm getting my head into this the, the sort of environment of the book. Uh, similarly with um, case study, you know, I read lots of women's magazines from the 60s to try and get myself into the, the mind of my female character. Um Funnily enough, I mean, I, I spent a week in San Luis in January um, and there is a market there. It's in the same square. <laughs> and um, I uh, would I have written that scene in the market? Well, I went to the market because I knew I wanted to write a scene in the market. You know, so it's a kind of symbiosis of mm-hmm. like, OK, yeah. I want to I want to. I've got an idea of writing something where the the market is the hub of a, a town, a small town, you know. So it's, a, it's it's an interesting location for me. But of course, then I then go to the market and I walk around and I pay attention to what I'm seeing. Um, but the, the market I've written about is entirely fictional. I mean, um, but yeah. So yeah, that's an interesting question about the relationships. I suppose when I say I don't plan, what I mean is I don't plan the narrative. Yeah, I like yeah. to, I like to allow. So, for example, yesterday when I wrote this guy, this bursar who was called what did I call him? I called him Schloop, um, but he will not be called Schloop. I just used that <laughs> name because I, like, I didn't want to waste time trying to think of the right name. Yeah. Um, but I will anyway. Um, but maybe you know Schloop because I've written him now. Schloop will appear somewhere else in mm-hmm. the book. Mm-hmm. He might just be sitting at the end of the bar having a having a cognac, um, and he might, you know, turn away when Gorsky comes in, you know. But um, so this, and that's that's just a tiny, not even story, but it it's creating the mesh of connections between the characters. Yeah, it makes yeah. the world come alive. I think. Yeah, right. yeah, and it's you know writing about a small town, 
it's very important to me that these characters recur and you see them mm-hmm. um, because that's the that's the kind of claustrophobia that I'm trying to go for. And and you you mentioned there that you go to the library, I think Mitchell Library in Glasgow to to write and um you've said before that words don't come easily when you're no. writing. You you said that you try and write a thousand words a day, but I mean is that is that a strict target for you? Do you stay there until you've written a thousand words or is it just a an ambition? It's an ambition. Uh, yeah, it's an ambition. And I think I think the thing is it's not that hard to write a thousand words. I mean and I, you know, you can write a thousand words in two hours, but it takes me at least six hours to write those two, you know, to spend those two hours writing. Um, and some, you know, some, you know, Monday I went to the library. I didn't write a word. You know, I I, look, I looked at a couple of hundred words I'd written last week, and I I, I sometimes read a bit in the library to mm. kind of get myself in the mood. Um, but I mean, the reason I go to the library is because, as you say, words it doesn't come easily to me, and I need to. I try to eliminate distractions as much as possible. I use an internet blocker on my laptop. If possible, I don't take my phone to the library. Um, so it's it's just um, a way of, that, that's just kind of discipline. And I like to go there like I'm going to work now. Um, mm-hmm. um, so yeah, if I write a thousand words, sometimes I will just stop. I mean, not exactly a thousand words, but I might stop. But I mean, I wouldn't necessarily finish the scene because if I haven't finished the scene, it makes it easier for me to go back and, and pick up. Um, and that, that can be quite useful. Um, but sometimes if, you know, maybe I've written like 600 words, like I'll be like, oh, come on, keep going, you know. Yeah. So uh, it's just, it's a bit superficial to say a thousand words. It's a completely random number. But, you know, I mean, I know I say I don't like giving out advice, but you know, whatever it takes to motivate you, you know, whether it's a word count or you like to write by hand and write a certain number of pages, you know, whatever it takes, you know, just to find your own ways of motivating yourself, you know. And um, I will always leave the library happy if I've written a thousand words, even if I know those words are really terrible and I will mm-hmm. never even open the document again. Um, you know, that's, that's, that's fine for me. You only know that those words are no good once you've written them. Yeah. You know? Yeah, that's yeah. right, and also I think part of the part of the difficulty with writing is, you know, people that don't write think it's you just go and sit down and you bang out the words. What's difficult <laughs> about it? But you yeah. know, it, it can be a struggle, and sometimes it can sort of build up, and you sort of think, right, well, I'll, I'll sort that. I'll do it tomorrow. And if you put things off, then you never progress. So. No, you know, well, at you least know, getting the bad words out, I suppose, is still is still moving forward in some way. Yeah, I, I, no, I, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, there's there's no, nothing nothing happens if you don't write any words. You know, yeah, simple yeah. as that. I mean, I mean, there may be some people. Other every writer works in a different way, and um, and some people like to walk along the beach thinking about mm-hmm. the problems of the narrative and thinking about it in the abstract. You know, and. I would love to be able to do that. It doesn't work for me. I don't. I, I'm only really thinking about what I'm doing when I'm doing it, mm-hmm. or if I'm in a quite an immersive period of writing. Um, I, I mean, I, I, of course, I sometimes scribble notes to myself on random bits of paper, and you know, um, of little ideas that come to me. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I would definitely be an advocate of you know keep going. You know, just you can't. 
sit around waiting for inspiration, at least if you're writing a novel. I mean, because it's a, a war of attrition, yeah, you know. Yeah. Oh, I mean, I also wanted to touch on on the Booker Prize uh, uh-huh. nominations, which you've had for two of your books, His yeah. Project and Case Study. And, and the first time you were shortlisted, you know, what was that like? And and what kind of impact did that have on you in terms of your career? You know, what, what doors did it open? So, yeah, the impact of the long listing for His Bloody Project in the first place was absolutely massive because what I didn't realise is that the, the reach of the Booker Prize is so huge. You know, it's completely international. So as soon as you're on the long list and as in the situation I was in as being a very unknown writer, book had sold 500 copies or something, uh, you know, foreign publishers look at the long list and yeah. maybe if you're GM Coetzee or Ian McEwan or Hilary Mantel, you already have foreign deals everywhere. Mm-hmm. But suddenly foreign publishers are interested in your work and that is incredibly exciting. So immediately on the long list, an Australian pub, a very brilliant Australian publisher called Text came in um, and there was an auction in Italy, um, book got picked up in France, and so on and that's tremendously exciting then you get on the you think it can't get any better and then you get on the shortlist and the shortlist is you know it's um it's very intense being on the shortlist of the booker prize i just totally embraced it i'm like i will do i'm going to do everything because Mm -hmm. this this opportunity will never come again you know, even if even if somehow I got on the book shortlist on another occasion, it would never have the same impact because at that point, where I was in my career, yeah. Um, so I, you know, I just I did every interview, I wrote all the blog pieces going, um, and you know, I did all the events I could, and uh, absolutely incredible. And the impact on my career was incalculable. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was completely life changing. The weird thing is, um, so on the well, his bloody project was on the shortlist. It sold about thirty thousand copies. The the normal number of books that a book sells on the Booker shortlist is about five thousand. People think that you know you sell tens of thousands of books or more on the shortlist. Most books sell five thousand copies. Wow. Somehow, um, his bloody project outsold all the other books on the shortlist in total. And then even though, even when I didn't win, you know, it went on to, it kept selling. It yeah. sold, I think it sold 10,000 copies in the following January. Wow, and that's crazy. Yeah, it was totally. And that's why I'm going back to that sort of word of mouth thing. Um, yeah. Because although absolutely the Booker Prize provided that book with a platform and brought it into view, and it suddenly it's on the front table of every Waterstones in the country with the Booker shortlist. But it needed the absolutely needed that platform. But somehow, the effect on that book was incredible. I mean, yeah. it's published in twenty countries, um, and you know, you know, every time a book your book gets published somewhere else, you know, you get paid. I mean, and it might be five hundred euros, or it might be five thousand euros. But it's, you're not doing any more work. Your book <laughs> is doing that work for you. Yeah, and um, you know, the impact of that has been. Incredible. I mean, I spent the following year traveling. I didn't even win, you know. <laughs> and, um, it would be terrifying to win. Um, so, yeah, it was it was amazing, life-changing, you know, brilliant. And I made enough money 
um, in that process that, you know, that I'm not somebody, every even now, every time I make any money from writing, I think, well, oh, that's the last money I'll ever make. Um, so I, I, I'm very careful with my money. My The money I've made is, for me, allowing me to, to sustain my career yeah. as a writer for as long as possible. Um, uh, so I'm not out buying sort of fancy cars or fancy clothes or anything. Um, um, so, yeah, it's, it, it made it possible for me to be a full-time writer. I mean, similarly, although I didn't make the, the shortlist with case study, and I'm, I'm, I'm not going to pretend I'm not disappointed about that, but, um, you know, it, again, uh, I wasn't in the same position. I was a little bit more prominent as a writer, um, so it wasn't going to have the same effect. But even so, it brought in some foreign deals that wouldn't have come along otherwise, yeah. brought me some invitations. I got invited to, you know, some festivals in Canada and stuff. So, you know, and that, that helps the publisher in America. Uh, so, yeah, it's... You you won the... Uh, did you, you won the Salt at the Bloody Scotland Prize, Carrie? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Did that... I mean, how much impact did that have for you? I mean, in terms of... Um, in terms of sales, I got a, a, a small bump, but nothing nothing major. But in terms of exposure to to like invitation to festivals and things like that, that was that was the biggest thing, which yeah. which, which I found was just, I guess people kind of knew who I was a little bit more than before. I guess absolutely, and it's something people can say when they're introducing you, winner of yeah, yeah, exactly. Did it have an impact on you, like as a in terms of your confidence or things like? Yeah, that? I think it, there's definitely a part which I think it's a kind of independent verification or something that other people, yeah. you know, that you've written something that people like is is is, is definitely and that, that and that does help the confidence. Cause I think we said earlier, so much of it is is you in your own head, you know, just easy to kind of get, get lost in it all. And and that's what I actually wanted to ask you about about what you wrote afterwards because because when you won the prize, did that have an impact on you and the pressure to provide for your next book? You know, did, did you think I have to write something as good as or has to be as big as my last book? You mean after His Bloody Project? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I mean, again, this goes back to the, the great relationship I have with Saraband. And I think during the, the whole circus of the Booker Prize with His Bloody Project, I think there was a point where I was like, oh my God, I'm going to have to write something else. I'd actually just finished the first draft of what, what was the accident on the A35? My sort of my sort of secret book that only <laughs> only real fans have read that one. Um, I've actually got it on a shelf somewhere. Uh, else. It's an excellent uh, book. Yeah, thanks. Um, so I'd already I'd already kind of had a, a finished draft of that. Um, but um, my publisher Sarah Hunt, you know, we were talking about. It and she said, Graham, um, you know, if if you don't want to write anything, don't write anything. And I will never forget that because here's. I'm her biggest writer. It's the biggest mm-hmm. moment for her as a publisher as well. For any publisher, again, I'm mm-hmm. shortlist uh, and agents. You know, it's a career highlight. And here, here she is saying to me because she cares about me as a person. She at no point said it'd be really good if you could write another 19th century crime novel. <laughs> um, she never ever said that. Um, and then, then at the point of our great success, she said, "You know, if you don't want to write anything." don't write anything and that is that she really took the heat off me and um i think because i was already well progressed with um the accident in the a35 um it made it easier for me to then go on and you know publish that and the thing is you know the the, the, 
the these French books, they're to me they're no lesser than my better known books, but they're 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 definitely they're more modest in tone. They're less noisy. They're less obviously clever, but they're 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 more difficult to write. I struggle more. Mm-hmm. You know, the accident A thirty five is the most difficult book I've ever written, partly oh, because right. of this process where. I don't plan anything, so I only have only have the characters and the and the town. And whereas with his bloody project and case study, they they both had a kind of grandiose structure and a kind of big idea, big central idea. And that in your in the writing process and the confidence you have to maintain to keep going with a, an idea, um, that that sustains helps to sustain me. If you're writing a book about nothing, and to use a sort of Seinfeldian phrase, uh, it's really hard. You're like, why am I writing this book? Nobody's going. Well, who cares about the market, San Luis? Who cares? Um, yeah, I have those thoughts all the time. You know, um, but again, I've got you know my relationship with Sarah Hunt at Sandaband. She is, t- you know, she, she we joke about it now, talking me off the ledge, where I'm like. Okay, like Sarah, this this is such a pile of shit. I'm putting it in the bin. She's like, well, why don't you let me have a look at it first? Um, so uh, yeah, I think these kind of relations. Now, now I do have an. I now going back to the agent conversation. I, I separated amicably with the first agency. All as I say, they did a good job for me. Didn't work out. Um, I was in. I was in in a very unusual position in that I was a Booker shortlisted author without an agent. All right. So, um, I at that point had agents approaching me. I know this is going to make you feel really jealous, Marco. <laughs> um, and saying, "Oh, I hear you don't have an agent. Would you like to have coffee?" <laughs> um, so I was there in, in a very fortunate position, whereby I was able to have coffee with a few agents, and um, I met who the person who became my agent, Isabel Dixon of Blake Friedman. I met. She came to one of my events and introduced herself. And, you know, we met up a couple of times and, you know, it's it's building those relationships which become uh, very important. And, you know, I had my long-standing relationship with Sandaband and then I had this new relationship with my agent. Um, and, it you know, it takes a while to just find out how everything's going to work out between you. I mean, I'm now, I'm now like super, super happy with my relationship with Isabel as well. And I think she's doing a brilliant job for me. But I was in a very, it was a very fortunate position. One of the silliest pieces of advice I hear being given to um, writers is, you know, get the agent that's right for you. Mm. I mean, I, I don't know anybody who got, you know, who, who didn't just get the only agent who wanted them. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, you're not generally in a position of no. being so able to choose. Crossing them off the list. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, There's it, last, last room in standing, you know. It, it, but, I mean, what what you're saying there is, is something that is sometimes missed because, you know, writing is obviously a very solitary profession a lot of the time, but there is it is important i think it's clear from speaking to all the guests we've spoken to on the podcast that to have a supportive team around you in terms of agent and editor that relate those relationships are can be extremely important for a writer absolutely i mean um and i think yeah important in terms of the actual cons- make making of the work but yeah. also uh, I think more for me because I, I don't show my work until quite a late stage. I've got one sort of trusted reader 
Um, but I, I'm not showing people my first drafts, you know. Um, but it, it's um, it's just that I think it's more the sort of psychological support network as well. Um, and, yeah. you know, somebody you can, you can, you know, you can phone up and say, this novel is a piece of shit. And they say, oh, don't worry, just, you know, keep going. Or oh, don't, don't worry. I've never, I've never had a contract for a book, a future book. You yeah. know, I've never, never had a two book deal on anything. So I'm kind of, um, I'm, I'm not under pressure like that. Although sometimes I wish I was, you know, I wish Sarah would be like, I'd really like to have this book by October. <laughs> like, okay, no problem. You know? Yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, no, it's um, having people around you to just be be on your side is is very very useful. You know, and I, I do feel very lucky with the people I work with. Um, yeah, totally. And and so it sounds like at the moment you're you're just working on this on the next Gorski book and, and yeah. uh, the final the final one the final one. I, I mean, how far along in that process are you? Um, it's it's a big old mess. I reckon I've got about two thirds of a draft. Yeah, maybe a little bit more. I haven't. It's all in separate documents, so um, some of it written in notebooks. Mm. So I don't know. I'm probably. I mean, I'm, I must have written fifty thousand words. It doesn't have to be a hugely long book, um, but it is the end of the trilogy. Um, so I want it to be a trilogy for which by which I, I want it to mesh in with the other books, you know. Um, it's not just a case of giving another case to my detective. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, who knows what anybody will make of this book. <laughs> I think it's, it's, it's um, on the one hand, it's got no story, but on the other hand, it's got like three separate stories. Um, so, uh, I don't know. I'm, I, it's a, That's it's the tagline for the book right now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's the completion of a project for me. You know, in a way, I think of these yeah. three books as a single project. And yeah. um, I'll be I'll be happy when it's done. Um, as you know, you'll know how it's, what it's like, you know. Are you working on a novel, Mar- Marco? Uh, I've, I've sort of started playing about with a, with a new idea, but I'm not really... <laughs> Usually far into uh, this stage. I, I love I love these kind of answers. I love started playing by it's so it's so Scottish. You know, when I do events, um, uh, I sometimes ask the audience, you know, if there anybody anybody in the room is writing, and you can tell all the people who are because you just suddenly look at their feet. You know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. uh, and uh, you know, if we were Americans, they'd all be like, "Hell yeah, I'm a yeah, writer." Right. Exactly. I'm like, yeah. "What have you written? <laughs> Nothing." <laughs> um, so 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 what's next after you've after you've finished this book? Have you got anything you got your mind on in, in the yeah. horizon? Well, after I finish so after I finish the final Gorsky book, uh, I've got a big project in mind which okay. is in my my mind a sort of magnum opus, big project which will take me five years to write. Um I can't I don't want to say too much about it because even my you know, nobody knows really much about it. Um but it'll be it'll be a big a big book with a big, you know, a lot of research, which I love, as I said. And, um, you know, as I say, I'm, I'll need to save up a few pennies to sustain me to to the point of um, finishing that one. But, oh, I'm, okay. you know, it's like um, every I never learn. Every time I've come to a new project, I'm like, oh, it'll be easy next time. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, 
it never is. And, you know, I always, when I was struggling away writing Del Bado uh, and not having an agent, not having a publisher, I always thought, if only, if only I had a publisher, it would all be so easy then. Um, but it's somehow, it's, of course, it, I think it's easier knowing that your work will be published mm -hmm. or, you, yeah. or at least I would never want a publisher to publish my work if they thought it was substandard. I'd want yeah. them to tell me. Um, and you always but, set that bar higher for yourself yeah. with each book, don't you, I suppose? Uh, absolutely, absolutely. And uh, I think I've become more careful with my, my writing and I hope, I hope I'm getting better. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, it doesn't get any, it hasn't really got, the actual process of sitting down in front of the laptop hasn't really changed for me. <laughs> What was the last book that you read? Last book, um, I, I, I was I was I was away at a George Simenon event in Belgium last uh, week, um, and I've been rereading Pios of Simenon. So I actually this morning finished the George Simenon novel called uh, New Haven Dieppe or L'Homme de Londres in French. Um, not one of his greatest novels, um, but the best. Um, I'm also I'm. A, um, I, I've, I've been reading a lot of Annie Arnault, so I mean, if anybody's looking for, you know, a recommendation, go and read uh, read anything by Annie Arnault, uh, the French writer. She won the Nobel Prize last year, rightfully so. She's to me, she is so far above any other writer I'm reading at the moment. Uh, I will devour anything by Annie. Excellent. <laughs> um, what about the last film that you watched? Oh. Uh, I'm, 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 it may have been Anchorman too. <laughs> <laughs> what a um, what a jump classic. from from well, French you know, literature I, uh, to. Uh, it wasn't actually. I I went to see After Sun at the cinema. Oh yeah, okay. Which ended up uh, very very low key film, very small scale. Um, I like that. I really like the atmosphere of it. I've been trying to get back to going to the cinema more regularly. Mm -hmm. um, there are certain films in which I would include After Sun. That you need to see in the cinema, not necessarily because they're big in scale, but because you kind of commit more to it. And you, yeah, it, yeah, here's no, a film I mean, that it, it, you, you know, you need to, it's taking its time, you know. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, good. I'd recommend that as well. Nice, excellent. And would you recommend Anchorman too? <laughs> I, I was a little bit disappointed, to be honest. Um, <laughs> yeah, compared um, to the classic, if I had to recommend a Will Ferrell film, it would be Blades of Glory. Oh yeah, oh, that's nice. a good one. Yeah, yeah, Blades yeah. of Glory. That's a great one. I only have to think about Blades of Glory to start laughing. <laughs> 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 the scene with the toilet paper. Oh my god. <laughs> the ice the, the the very slow chase yeah. on the ice skates. Is that's really right. Oh my god. i I love I love the way we segued from Nobel Prize I know, exactly. to Blades of Glory. <laughs> that, that, that sums up my cultural life. Uh, and and what about a uh, TV? that you're watching or have been watching I, I i don't my tv doesn't really work and it hasn't right. for years i don't really watch it's not um, um i don't watch much tv um except for match of the day and master chef um so yeah i don't I, I'm, I'm i'm a bit old school when it comes to sort of long form netflix kind of stuff yeah. i'm a bit um i'm still stuck in the feature film mode of the 20th century <laughs> <laughs> 
And uh, well, the very last last thing we do is a super quick fire, either or. And um, I always say there's no right answer here apart from one, although I suspect I can guess what your answer would be to that one. But we'll start off with French literature or Scottish literature. French. Right, uh, TV or cinema, I think we know the answer. Cinema. <laughs> cinema for me. Uh, Night Owl or Early Bird? Night Owl. Uh, music or no music when you're writing? No music. And the last one, audiobook or ebook? Physical book. Ah. <laughs> that's, that's exactly the answer Tarek didn't want. Yeah, I, didn't, I knew they were going to say that. Yeah, we, we always ask this final question and nobody ever picks ebook. And I always, I feel like I have to fight the ebook fight single handedly. Well, good for you. And, um, you know, nothing wrong with ebooks or audiobooks. I've just never read one. <laughs> never, I'm not that, one. No, an ebook, no. Oh, wow. I mean, I, I, don't, I, I don't understand why I would. <laughs> if you're if you're on holiday, you can well, carry. Yeah, if, you, if, if you're travelling with yeah, yeah, twenty I do, books. I, oh, I don't. I, if I take five books on holiday, there's no way I'll even read three of them. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> and I, you know, unless you're going, even if you did read your whole five books, which has never happened, you can buy a new one when you're there. <laughs> that's, that's true. These are good points. <laughs> We'll have to cut. We'll have cut this whole end bit off. Episode. This is, this is dreadful. Sorry, are you are you uh, are you an officiado of the? E-book? I mean, I do. I've I've I seem to uh, as a caricature that I play a little. Yeah, bit. I don't know. I do like ebooks, but I feel like I feel so sorry for them now because no one no one ever picks them. But I feel I have to. Well, the, um, authors get really good royalties from ebooks. That's true. Yeah. That's, so that's I mean, I'm not point. anti-ebooks. It's not. Although they, although they they do also sell them for like a quid, so it's 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 not. Yeah, a... yeah, uh, but it's quite complicated. Because yeah. it's be on the basis of the recommended price, that's another argument. But um, I spent too much time in front of screens already, so you know that's why I don't read ebooks. Oh, fair enough. Fair also, enough. as you can see behind me, I am a lover <laughs> of physical books, um, and I, I like to keep the book as a sort of memento, and you yeah. can scroll stuff in the margin. And yeah, but um, you do you, do you write stuff in the? Oh, that's... Um, it depends on the book. I mean, if it's an old vintage Penguin, no. But if it's a modern paperback, yes. As long as you don't fold down the corners of the page. Oh, God, no. God, no. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you think I'm a barbarian? <laughs> I have to say it was a, it's a welcome surprise to find a man of such literally literary talents and yeah, his favourite film is actually Blades of Glory. Well, yeah, his favourite Will Ferrell film, to be fair. Not his... I think it was his favourite <laughs> film he said of all time. <laughs> yes, uh, yeah, no, we are we are both uh, partial to a, to a Will Ferrell movie, so yeah, always yes. happy to to chat about that. Um, I believe actually that's maybe he's perhaps the sole reason you're very excited for the Barbie movie, Marco. Yeah, I think that's true. I wasn't, I didn't really have any desire to see the Barbie movie until I saw Will Ferrell was in it. To be honest. <laughs> <laughs> but now, now more D one more keen. Um, uh, yeah, no, thanks very much to Graham for coming on. That was a really interesting chat, and you know, interesting as well to hear about the the you know the difficulties sometimes that he has in getting the words on the page and things like mm-hmm. that. Because when you read books of that caliber, you can sometimes think this person knows what they're doing. They're, they've, they've got it down, no problem, and yet. You know, all writers have that have that same struggle sometimes, and also yeah. his struggle to get these books published, despite them being, you know, in retrospect, they're now they're now obviously 
held up as great books, but it was very, very difficult for him to find a publisher that was willing to take a chance on them. I don't know if that was yeah. to do with the form that they were in and that sort of metafiction. Yeah, form. I know. I wonder. I, I guess it's kind of. I mean, as you says, even though it was maybe the original type of novel, I suppose it's anything different. Mm. They, they find scary, don't the publishers, and they don't, you know, until it's a massive success. And then, as you've said before, they want much more of the same thing. Yeah, so it's, exactly. It's, it's, it's a hard beast. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it sounds it sounds like a, we will get the, the end of the Gorski trilogy at some point. Yes. But he's, he's working on that just now. So, yeah, thanks very much to Graham for coming on. And obviously, you can buy his books. We'll put a link in the podcast description if you want to do that online. Um, and next week, we are moving into the world of film. Yes, we are chatting with Fleur Davith, who is, I hope I've pronounced that name correctly, she's a Welsh writer um, who's written a number of Welsh of books written in the Welsh language, um, and she's worked in and film, TV, TV again. Yeah. yeah, yeah, she's had really a really, you know, interesting career, and, and, and it's interesting to chat to someone who has been kind of immersed in that Welsh language and Welsh TV uh, and, and, and books, and, and how that compares with finding success across the rest of the UK does that translate well do people know about people who are successful in pockets of the UK yeah because she also writes in English as well so Mm -hmm. yeah but we do chat to her a bit about that the 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 sort of transition between the two you know coming from Wales into the rest of the UK and She's someone that's won awards. She's won Baf- Welsh BAFTA awards and things like that, mm-hmm. but it doesn't seem to be worth very much in the eyes yeah, of it's, it's producers in England, um, yeah. which is, you know, surprising and disappointing. Frustrating. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, it's a great chat, so please do tune in for that one. If you enjoyed today's episode, please do take the time to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app, as that helps us to continue to get great guests. And of course, if you want to get in touch, you can do so via a variety of methods. The first is email, good old-fashioned email, which is podcast at rightgear.co.uk. Or if you want to find us across social media, then all you have to do is search at UK page one. And you'll get us on our Twitter page, on our Blue Sky, on our Instagram. Threads. On our threads. But for Mastodon, you need to go to writing.community sorry writing.exchange forward slash at page one pod yeah that's right so yeah please uh, do get in touch if uh, if you want to let us know about the episodes and we'll be back next week with another great episode see you later